Welcome to It Can Be Said. My name is Will Calling, and I'm joined as always by the one, the only, Dr. Luke Middup. How are you today, Luke? I'm very well, thanks, Will. Last day of teaching! Woo! <laughs> but you love your students, and you love teaching them. I do, I do, and now I've got to go away and do stupid, boring research. <laughs> Gotta make those dives, but, Luke. Go and I can't... And I can't, any, I can't. I can't even do. I can't even do most of. I can't even do a lot of that till June. For, when, for any ref inspectors listening, uh, stupid and boring are actually Nottinghamshire works words for exciting and thrilling. Impactful. Yeah, it's all. It's, it's all. Yeah, it, sorry. Yes. Sorry. Impactful. <laughs> Excited <laughs> about being impactful. That's what stupid and boring means in the Nottinghamshire dialect. Do do Scottish unis do ref? Well, yes, because this is the thing we, we want to appear on all the Guardian League tables. So even though <laughs> we, this is then we can talk about this on another podcast if you want. But the the higher education being a devolved matter is stupid yeah. because in practice, like well, in practice, the Scottish government has outside of the financing, the Scottish government has almost no impact. On well, no, I I would disagree. I don't think it's stupid. It's one of these classic things where uh, the way the Blair government devolved everything, it was like very binary. It's either a devolved competence or it's not. But actually, you look at most federal systems, they don't work like that. No, you have overlapping uh, uh, remits and responsibilities. However, there's an issue with the, the teaching side being devolved, um, you know, because... No, there, there already is a difference with Scottish universities because you have the uh, you have the fourth subject year before you go on and you start specialising. But um, the research side, yeah, that being devolved makes absolutely no sense whatsoever uh, because it's no, it's 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 the benefit of the Scottish universities to be part of a united uh, UK research market. Yeah, and they are, and they are. Until they until 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 Scotland gets independence, and then you're going to get a lot of university bureaucrats in Scotland going, oh, oh crap, oh crap. Anyway, moving on. And Simon, how are you? I'm, a bit, I'm, I'm just worried I'm going to say something I'm, I'm not supposed to. So moving on. <laughs> how are you, Simon? I'm really good. Do you, do you want to talk about how dull and boring parts of your job are? No, because uh, I haven't been to it this week, so I don't know. <laughs> hey! I've forgotten all of the small. Yeah, no, I actually took that, did that radical thing of taking a week's leave, uh, in which um, I, I had a very productive week's leave. I had a haircut, uh, which obviously listeners cannot see. But about two weeks ago, I caught my um, hair in the sort of. Um, in the no- one of the nose pads of my glasses, and that was the moment at which I'd realised the haircut situation had really got out of control. Oh, that, uh, really, that really hurts, that does. Well, it, yeah, it was just quite inconvenient. So I had a haircut, I had my second jab, uh, which is great, because it was literally, it was like that thing of like, I've been, I've been thinking, oh, because I had quite a, not a great reaction to the first one, and I was like, oh, if I get asked for a second jab, do I take the day off afterwards? 
and pe different people gave me different advice and I decided I probably would because to be honest I have too much leave and then it came through on Sunday would you like to have your second jab and it's like well I'm taking Thursday off work anyway because I'm taking the whole week off uh I've mostly walked to I've basically done two things this week with my week off other than getting a jab and a haircut I have walked too far and bought too many books but I did also donate about 30 books to the Oxfam bookshop it, so in my dad's desire for me to have a one-in-one-out policy, I can buy lots more books now. So <laughs> it's been it's been a lot, and, and obviously I've also just I've also seen my parents this week. Uh, I've seen people for you know drinks and brunch and things. It's been yeah, it's it's been delightful. London, I, I I'm I'm I think I'm falling back in love with London. It's nice. It's a nice vibe. Well, it's 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 a place where things happen during a week, unlike uh, the provinces. So. Well, no, I think this is the thing. I think it's just, it has for six months been a place where nothing happens ever. So, like, I've just, been, I'd, I'd forgotten that it was just, oh, yeah, it's a place where people and things are. But, but I've, got to say, I've got to say, actually, Nottingham City Centre, I went to, I went to get some food last weekend, and actually that was pretty grim. Not only because my favourite restaurant is closed, but a lot of places, a lot of places are still closed, and I think a lot of places aren't going to open back up. Uh, so is, was, that, is that because they didn't feel they didn't have enough any outdoor space, or because no, there were plenty of like, pubs uh, and things? There are a lot of places where, like you know, there was there was newspaper over the windows and um, um, that stuff had been taken down, so that closed. Yeah, so actually that was that was that was really depressing, and it did sort of I think for the first time uh, sort of bring home the the damage that the, the the damage that this pandemic has done. Um, you know, outside of the outside of the obvious sort of health consequences of it. Well, um, but yeah, that really sucked. And I do uh, risk takers, uh, vaccinate or vaccinated um, uh, elite. Pfizer. I I I I have not lived the flat, so I don't know how how things are looking like in Wolverhampton. But I'm gonna bet it looks grim uh, <laughs> because it looked grim it before the pandemic. <laughs> I mean, it, it is, I think, I mean, this is what, it's It's interesting, I think having the three of us, you know, on, 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 on as the podcast, it is, it, it is, it will be interesting to see, because I mean, the, the, uh, to see the differing economic effects of this pandemic, because at the moment, uh, London actually has the highest unemployment rate in the country, but the question is how much of that snaps back. But, it, but, it, but interestingly, I was talking to colleagues that, you know, are still back up in Scotland and a few that live in St Andrews. And apparently St Andrews looks great, you know. That I mean, St Andrews, St Andrews is a very easy place to to do outside dining in anyway, because like the main market street is mostly pedestrianised anyway. Yeah. So it's a really it's a really easy town for the main street to put like stuff out. But apparently, like the, there's loads of extra tables. All the restaurants appeared appeared to have survived be either because I think that's because in Nottingham you have the phenomenon of like small chain restaurants, whereas in St Andrews it's either big national chains or completely independent, you know, or completely small, local, independent. Whereas, and uh, there is some like evidence of this apparently. It's, it's, it's what's COVID has really hit badly are the chains, but the the smaller. Yeah, they're, they're too. They're too chain restaurants. They're they're too big to be small, and they're too uh, they're too uh, uh, small to be big. Yeah, 
Um, yeah, yeah. That, that that kind of middle business. So, yeah, no, I, I could see. I think it also just the way Nottingham is set up. That city centre is actually quite a long way from where people live. It is, so, yeah. So, so like, it's not going to be it's not going to be easy to pivot to, towards takeaway. Um, anyway, it looks like it looks like you, me and you might actually uh, might actually see each other in the flesh at some point relatively soon. Well, yes, although I mean that's I mean it's one of the things I I must pull my hands up. I bought a um, Economist article that was saying that you know the new thing in twenty twenty one is the beer garden. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? The beer garden's been here for for for, for as long as I can remember. And then I remembered I'm a yokel from Loughborough and it's surrounding villages. And like, we have lots of space. And so we do have like lots and lots of beer gardens. But in bigger cities where space is more of a premium, bars actually don't tend to have uh, beer gardens or outdoor no. areas. And so you look at, I was, we, we, we've got a table book for Turtle, uh, uh, Turtle Bay. Um, um, but that's at like four thirty, and we're like trying to find somewhere to have a drink beforehand. And like, there's like, there's hardly anywhere open for drinks. By the by the way, tried tried to book a restaurant table more than two weeks in advance, and the only time I could get was half past four in the afternoon. The only time I could yeah. get was half past four in the afternoon. And it's only for two people as well. It's for it's two like, people, yeah. Not exactly, but yeah, but like, it's just you forget. Um, I mean, yeah, it is interesting. I think there are some, because I think some places are trying to do walk up only to, to, to multiply that. And then some places are, yeah, and the other places that aren't are just booked out. Yeah. But, but I think of Loughborough, like um, um, the Weatherspoons in Loughborough had a big outdoor dining area. The um, Scream Pub in Loughborough had a big outdoor dining area. Um, I think there's a couple of other pubs in the city centre that had outdoor dining areas. Like, you know, there were a lot of places that had, like, proper beer gardens. And that's before you get to, like, the out-of-town, like, uh, wacky warehouse-style pubs um, where they had the play area for kids. Um, but, yeah, no, I, 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 I... So I apologize to The Economist. That was not a stupid article. Also, talking about talking about nature healing, I was trying to I'm trying to book train tickets the other day, and I realised it's been over a year since I booked a train ticket. It normally didn't go normally didn't go more than about three or four weeks between booking um, train tickets. I'm completely out. I'm completely out of practice. Well, it's even. I mean, you think for me, like I've not been on a train. Since like the fifteenth of March last year, when I was coming back from Germany, and I and I I basically got sick of my National Express coach and just got off at Coventry and got the train back for the last journey. Yeah, and um, I, I I remember you calling me and me reaming you out as a complete and utter lunatic because what are you doing in a confined space, William? At the beginning of the pandemic, I took two twenty-four hour coach and train journeys. So yes, so I could spend three days in close proximity with people from all over Europe. Ladies and gentlemen, all I will say is that my impression of Will's mother was at its sharpest at that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you knew what I was doing. My mum knew nothing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyway, we, uh, so, so we were hoping to be joined by Rich, but Rich has been caught up with Rick else. So uh, we, will, we, will, we, won't, we will, will do this in chronological order. Um, rather than get confused. 
I suppose by chronological order, we would start with briefly with David Cameron and Green's Sill. Green Green yeah, Green Sill scandal. Luke, well, what has your political hero, Dodgy Dave, been doing now? Well, okay, before we get into before we get into the meat of this thing, like of course, of course, this company was dodgy. It's led by a guy called Lex Greensill. Have these people never read a comic? Have they never seen a movie? You don't trust anybody that goes by Lex. What? I mean, <laughs> and names his company after himself. And names his company after himself. I mean, this is this is just this is just classic supervillain behaviour. Um, so David Cameron, former prime minister, resigns in two thousand and sixteen. Um. Is at a bit of a loose end. Wants to wants to make you know wants to make some money. So he goes to work for this bank. What well, actually calling it a bank is a bit of a misnomer. It is a financial institution. It's a shadow bank basically. It's a financial institution. It's what it it's what technically is referred to as financial technology, but what average human beings would refer to as. A bit dodgy, a little bit shonky, um, and essentially, what this company what this company does is provide short term capital, uh, short term loans to companies to meet to meet things like payroll. Um, but it also but it also wanted it also wanted to expand those kind of short term loans to individual people. So one of the schemes they wanted to run was where you would we would we would literally be able to cash your paycheck daily um, as an alternative to sort of high interest payday loans. Basically, basically large large companies, uh, large multinational companies, have always been able to finance themselves this way by getting short term credit by providing something called asset backed commercial paper which is just a contract that says if I default on this short-term loan that you're giving me, you can seize part, you can seize part of my company's assets. And what, but that's only ever, been, that's only ever been, been available to companies that have been able to raise money off sort of international, sort of international markets. The, what Green Cell and other companies are the, are the, the sort of doing is trying to provide that kind of asset-backed commercial paper to small and medium-sized companies. And also, and this is where it gets controversial, they, Green Cell wanted to insert itself in the government's supply chain. So it wanted, it wanted to essentially provide a bridging, a short-term bridging loans to... You know, people like pharmacists who are waiting for the NHS to pay them for services rendered. Um, and in fact, that scheme was actually set up by the former cabinet secretary, um, Jeremy Hayward. And so, so Luke, can I just come in there? Because like, this is a thing I don't get. Because. Um, you know, as, as you may have experience of in your work, I certainly have experience of in my job. The reason why the public sector, yes, universities, you're part of the public sector, deal with it. Deal with it, live uh, with it. Um, um, the reason why the public sector is slow to pay invoices is not just cash flow. Um, it's due to bureaucracy. You know, it's it's the forms you have to fill in, it's the hoops you have to 
um, jump through. It's, you know, you have to cross every, dot every I and cross every T. Uh, and like that has only escalated these past five years. I went, even like even in my current job, when I saw in my current job, I could still pay people um, uh, without an invoice um, if they were one-off speaker. Now, even a one-off speaker, I have to get them added as a supplier. I have to get them approved as a supplier. And I, I have to have an invoice. And only when they've been approved as a supplier and I've got the invoice, can we pay them. None of this solves that issue. So I don't, I, I, like, I, and I thought your explanation was the best I've heard, but I've read the explanation about how this was, you know, helping pharmacists get their money from the NHS quicker. But I don't get how it gets the money quicker because the issue, the reason why the NHS is slow to pay pharmacists or why universities are slow to pay people or why, you know, anything in the government is slow to pay its contractors is because there's just so many fucking forms. Yeah, and I mean, I, I don't think there, I don't think there is anything. I don't think there is anything necessarily bad in allowing small and medium-sized enterprises to to essentially access um, investment to essentially access investment banking services. But 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 uh, but, but sorry, could you? Could, because you've looked into it more than me. How was it making it easier for the government? I, I get the argument that like this is useful stuff for. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't get how it. I don't get how it makes. It, I don't get. I understand how. I understand how it works in a private sector context. I don't understand how it work, How it was supposed to work in a public sector context. Um, so it was a bad idea. I think as well. It was a, it was a bad it was a bad idea, but the 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 polit the political co the political controversy arose arises basically from two things. The first is how did this relatively junior um, ex Goldman Sachs banker uh, who had just you know put out a shingle and set up his own bank get access to the great and good of um, British politics, not just politics, but actually of government. You know, Jeremy, Hay Jeremy Haywood is cabinet secretary. Jeremy Haywood, coincidentally, although he's often thought of as a lifelong uh, civil servant, and he did spend the majority of his career, his working life in the civil service, did spend some time, did spend some time working for J.P. Morgan as well. So he does, ha he had entree um, into that world. Um, Essentially, what seems to have happened is that Greensill massively overextended itself. Um, I mean, actually, we don't know there's going to be an investigation. I would imagine, I would imagine there's going to be an investigation. There's going to be, there are multiple journalists running this down. But this does, to me, have the slight whiff of a Ponzi. This does, to me, have a slight whiff of a Ponzi scheme about it. Well... I think a more, I mean, that, that, that's the worst case scenario. A more um, sympathetic uh, thing would be there's a reason why there are so many checks on paying invoices in most uh, yeah. medium and large scale businesses. And Greensill trying to short, shortcut these meant it was holding the bag on a lot of bad invoices that got caught up and, he didn't and, get and also and also lend and also 
one of one of the big one of the big clients Greensill was the Guptas, um, you know, multifarious metals, um, you know, the, the huge international um, metallurgy conglomerate that is the Guptas. By the way, Jacob Zuma says hello. Uh, <laughs> oh yes, I, I I know that name. I know that. I, I know yeah, it is. It is. It is. It is the same. It is the same Guptas. Um, wow, those yeah. guys have destroyed so many uh, lives and so yeah. many businesses. Uh, but I mean, and like, but I mean and shout, shout out out to my colleagues who used to work about Pottinger. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, but it's like, guys. The re- the reason the reason Sanjeev Gupta is going to a, a relatively newly established bank is because every reputable financial institution in the world over wouldn't touch him with a ten foot disinfectant barge pole. What? Not even Deutsche Bank. Not even Deutsche. Not even what? Deutsche Bank. <laughs> not even. No, not even the Germans would touch. Um. Yeah. So I mean. I, I mean. You guys, you guys can talk. You guys can talk more about the lobbying aspect of this. But I think what's, I think what's really interesting here is, um, is the is the sort of the financial scandal, not so much of David Cameron, but of Greensill itself. Yeah. Before I, I'll bring because, this, I, sorry, go, sorry, go, on, Luke. Because from what I can tell from reading the FT's coverage, from reading the Economist coverage, this was a shockingly, this was a shockingly badly run company. And it's an, and you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna agree with me here, well, because we've had this conversation many times. There is too much there is too much money sloshing around the private equity market because Greensill is a classic example, like Theranos, like WeWork, of these unicorns that stay in private hands that never float on a public exchange that can bring down huge, unprecedented amounts of venture capital. If this were a publicly listed, if this had been a publicly listed company, um, Lex Greenson would have been out on his out would have been out on his elbow well before now. Yeah, I mean, um, I'll bring Simon in a second because Simon can explain the lobbying side of the scandal. But I, I, um, I do think increasingly, if we're not going to kind of get that money sloshing around out through like a big expansion of deficit spending, which we're not going to we probably have to start seriously thinking about saying, well, there's actually only a certain level your company can be before you are forced to go public. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's not a certain, like my, my way of doing this would be you'd a have, you'd a have a, you'd a have a certain level of capital that once you breached, you once you breach that level of capital to say three, three years running, you have to wish you have to issue an IPO. Um, or you, or you look, or you do it. You look at it in terms of growth. You can't grow, but you can't grow beyond a certain percentage per year without offering an IPO. But yeah, I do think I do think there is serious, there is a serious systemic problem with just huge amounts of venture capital sloshing around the system, meaning that company, meaning that companies, private companies, can grow to a size. That they really shouldn't, without strong, without the stronger corporate governance that comes with a public listing. The other thing I just say is, I, I think the, the other thing that actually uh, Greensill reminds me of is things like Carillion. Yeah. Where 
the they are doing a service for the public sector, service in inverted commas, where they're not actually like I, we 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 talked about this in a podcast once, Luke. Where there's that thing of you have companies like Herulean, like some of the train franchises, that clearly aren't making money off the work they do. So how could Jamie Corbyn say it's a ripoff of the government? And the reason it's a ripoff of the government is yes. They are probably undercharging for the work they're doing, but the managers, the senior executives of those companies, are making an absolute killing by securing these unprofitable contracts and then cutting every single corner they can think of, trying to renegotiate the deal to make it work so they can justify their, their fat salary. And I think this is another example of this. Like I said, you know. If there's an issue with how promptly the government is paying freelancers and contractors and small entities, no, semi-detached entities such as pharmacists, such as GP surgeries, solve that problem. Don't just bolt on some middleman to kind of, you know, remove your responsibility for it. Because the reality is, is that It'll be easier for you as the government to do it than the middleman. And that's why you know, I've really taken against these outsourcing um, companies. Um, I, I, th- I think they're bad and I think they're dangerous. And I, and I think there's I think there's a really good article a few years ago in the Atlantic when they were bemoaning the fact that so many companies have outsourced their like things like catering and uh, estates and facilities. Because it used to be, you know, you could join a major multinational as the janitor, as a caretaker, and you're part of the company. And so you had the advantages of being part of that company. You had access to internal routes of promotion. You could rise the ranks from being like a, a cleaner. Whereas today, in most major firms, in most mid-sized firms, completely different company. They have, they have no reason to invest in you. They don't even have a reason to know your name. And so, yeah, I think I think if I was Labour, and we'll talk about Labour a bit later on, if I was Labour, I would be big digging up that outsourcing thing again because I think this firm is just a bad idea. Yeah, and if, before we bring Simon in, I just want to I just want to make one last point. The reason the reason why big the reason why big multinationals can access this kind of this kind of um, this kind of repo financing or tri-party repo uh, financing. Is they is a they is a they have they have they have assets that can be they have assets that can be turned into they can have assets that can be turned into commercial paper, um, and often small and medium sized companies have a limited stock of assets that have a limited stock of physical assets that you can actually that you can actually use as collateral, um, but also because. These, but also because these com- these companies keep really good keep accurate books and keep really you know have like really tight control of um, have really tight control of their finances. Um, that's not you know that you you get you get you get the you get the occasional Enron you get the occasional um, global crossing you get the but. Generally speaking, once you reach a certain size, you have um, you have decent control of cash flow, 
and it does strike it does strike me that a lot of a lot of what Greensill were doing was actually, particularly in the case of the Guptas, actually, which is probably not, which is a big company, but they were lending to companies with, shall we say, questionable grasp on their own cash flow. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. me, me and you have talked for a while, Luke. Uh, Simon, any thoughts on what we've just been talking about? Do you want to talk more about the, how David Cameron um, got involved in this via lobbying? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're right on the on the outsourcing, and I, I think as well that everything I can see in terms of what Labour, how Labour's been going about a lot of this stuff in the last six to nine months, says to me that the out they're going to keep hitting the outsourcing bruise a, a lot for a lot longer, um, because you know, and 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 it's my job to ring the Stephen Bushbell this week um, first, Dave. but you know. But I think he's right. I think that he, he was right in the latest edition of the New Statesman podcast to say, like, you if you if you keep punching these bruises and if you keep punching the kind of like the smell of sleaze, which they're clearly going for, and we'll talk about that in, in relation to the to the lobbying scandal in a moment. But also this kind of like outsourcing. At some point, something is going to come. Like the weird thing is, at the moment, a lot of these outsourcing, a lot of the outsourcing stuff particularly around like PPE and um, and all of the sort of stuff around the, the coronavirus crisis, the government is basically able to go, and you know, you've, you've made this case on this podcast in the past of basically at a moment of chaos, we essentially turned on a massive hose and in the end we got more stuff. That's, and so therefore at the moment it doesn't feel like it's working, but the coronavirus crisis is passing. We are, you know, we are reaching the stage where hopefully that's over, particularly in this country, although obviously, you know, we don't know how the Indian situation is looking dangerous. And if it's correct that uh, people who have been vaccinated have been infected, then that's that's a huge concern. Um, but, you know, it looks like we're heading out of the crisis. At some point, we'll return to some point between now and 2024, we will return to normal politics. And at some point between now and 2024, something politically salient that's to do with outsourcing, uh, hint, hint, it'll probably be to do with escaped prisoners, um, will happen and they'll go, you know how we've been talking about outsourcing for three and a half years, says Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves. Um, like, and they'll go, hey, look, this is what we said would happen. I mean, also... So can I, just directly on that point, like I'm not convinced by that, but ironically, I think the the argument that proves that that's an effective strategy is the Captain Hindsight the Tories have done, because the Tories have been beating that drum in like September, October, November, December, and it wasn't really cutting through, and then all of a sudden we get like the chaos of Keir Starmer, a trying to pretend he was against Christmas reopening when he wasn't, and b even more so pretending that he was against schools reopening in January when he we, when he really wasn't. And since then, the Captain Hindsight stuff has stuck. And it probably wouldn't have stuck so well if the Tories hadn't have been kind of pissing into the wind for the for the for the four months beforehand. So sometimes mm. you you say stuff, it's not clicking but if you think what you're saying is right, you know, like you say, you will be vindicated because that thing will come out in a way that cuts through. 
And like the coronavirus, and you know, it, it's always worth saying with this stuff, the coronavirus, um, the, it's, the, you know, the whole, we're, okay, we're having the poll lead due to the vaccine stuff, but the coronavirus, you know, there was a rallying to the flag effect and now we're doing damn sight better than those awful Europeans in terms of vaccines. And so, you know, it, it's, Basically, my point is it's really difficult being in opposition at the moment. And yeah. and I think it's, I mean, we can talk, I'm sure at some point we'll, between now and the 6th of May, we'll talk about the local elections. And I have some concerns about Labour's strategy, but it doesn't, it might not go brilliantly well. Um, they might be, you'll know, basically, you'll know if it's gone really badly, if on the 7th of May, Keir Starmer is anywhere near Sadiq Khan because it will have meant they've won nothing else of note. If he's having to stand next to Sadiq Khan going, look, we beat Sean Bailey, um, then then it will not have gone well. Um, but anyway, we haven't mentioned David Cameron, which is a sentence I usually yeah, like Luke, to say. Luke, Luke has got a Jedi mind trick on him to try and protect this political hero. <laughs> All right, okay. okay go ahead. No, no, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's just that it's like every, it's like every social occasion I ever wish to go to. In general terms, it takes turn for the worse when someone mentions David Cameron. <laughs> um, I mean, it is dedicated. He is. I, I mean, I, I, I do feel a certain sorry to for him for a certain degree. Like most people who are former prime ministers, can swan around the world. They've got a sort of power. They've got a natural base of fans in somewhere, and they can. They can go around and they can make lovely speeches about nothing very much and pick up a big check and then buy more sheds on wheels. The problem for Cameron is, like, he doesn't have a natural constituency anymore because pro-European people hate him because they, he had the referendum. Anti-European people hate him because he fought for the European Union in that referendum. Um, like, um, you know, obviously most, you know, yes, people, I mean, no one, no one's not conservative is going to like him, but I don't, the conservatives, you know, he was meant to, he was meant for the conservatives to be their version of Tony Blair, i.e. you don't like me very much, but I'll win. And then he never really did. And actually now I think people who are rather more conservative, red and tooth and claw can go, yeah, we we get we got a proper like Eurosceptic populist conservative, and they won a majority of like eighty something. Uh, have you done that? No. So, so I think Cameron Cameron does has totally lost his natural constituency. He can't exactly you know talk about you know governing in times of cake crisis because he didn't. He resigned too quickly. But like he hasn't got. I mean, what 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 you know? His his premiership looks pretty thin. I mean. He got lucky on the Scottish referendum. Um, he was incidentally prime minister when we hosted the Olympics. Equal marriage is quite good. Um, I, I can't believe he's that. a really he's a really meh prime minister, frankly. Uh, see, I I don't say it's meh. I think you're being too kind and too harsh to say he was a mediocrity because he did do the turn to austerity. Um, which was a disaster. It was unnecessary, and it 
badly hurt this country's economy. But let's not get that because then Luke will come and say the austerity was a good thing. But the, the thing, I do agree, like, he is at a loose end. And you can tell with Cameron that his dream would have been NATO Secretary General, um, failing that, maybe, um, you know, maybe he would have gone to the commission, potentially. No, well, know. he couldn't. No, I'm saying, like, no, in his mind, when he was plotting his, his scenario, how his post-premiership was going to go, like, you know, we win the European referendum. I give him for a few more years. I pass to my mate, George. Um, and then he gets me some plum jobs. And, of course, the problem he faces is, I like Lucy, a lot of those plum jobs aren't available anymore because they're not part of the European Union. But also, like, you know, people abroad just just hate him. Like, they really, really hate him. Like, you, you, like it's it's not... It's not the fact that like pro-Europeans hate him, it's that actual Europeans hate him. You know, Americans who like Europeans hate him. And so like there's just nothing for him to do. And I, I can't remember who 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 I read this from. So I'm trying to make the point. We all think of David Cameron as this very traditional Tory. Um, and certainly compared to people like George Osborne. But the reality is, is this is a guy who's, who didn't spend a day in the city, didn't spend a day in the armed forces. He was a Tory party bureaucrat and he was a PR guy. Uh, and actually, Luke, he was a PR guy for Carlton slash ITV for like seven years. Okay. Um, and so... I mean, some of, some of our best podcast hosts have been PR guys. <laughs> oh, it's never against PR. But my point is, like, I think we all assume David Cameron would be happy being the idle rich. Because that's what Tories do, you know. Like, maybe after a decent interval, he'd take a position in the House of Lords and he'd live off his family's money, let Samantha Cameron really gun it with her fashion design uh, business. And he would just make boring speeches on, uh, I think he was a patron of a disability charity. Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's and like in anything else, you know, he cares to want to talk about, and he would just live a quite comfortable conventional life in a weird way. The type of stuff that Gordon Brown and Theresa May have done. Now, you look at Theresa May, like it's not as if she's not making money, but she's clearly just gunning the, the speeches. I think she may have got a, a couple of blue chip non, non executive director posts. <laughs> But she's just happy being a backbench MP. And it's like, I kind of admi- I kind of like it because I think it's good to have former prime ministers play this role. But it does just point out what a complete antisocial weirdo she is. Because like, you read stuff about David Cameron. He just, he felt this compulsion to, to support Theresa May. Um... But she was doing stuff that he disagreed with. And he really felt the loss of the flunkies and no longer being important in the House of Commons. Yet you can clearly tell Theresa May just doesn't give a shit. Yeah, to, to, because, uh, yeah, that, that was the whole thing. Because David Cameron actually, actually wanted to stay in the House of Commons and be a sort of Ted Heath, Jim Callaghan 
sort of elder statesman figure. But yeah, you're right, Will. The, the, the then got to be the thing of, well, um, to, it was grammar schools. It was grammar schools that broke the, the, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. Because what, what's David Cameron going to do if she does in, um, introduce legislation to open new grammar schools? He was dead against that. And, you know, you've got, the, you've got Newsnight and the, and, you know, the, the Twitterati going nuts over, oh, it'll be, it'll be, a, it'll be a breach of, it'll be a breach of, it'll be a breach of convention. Um, and Theresa May's just there going, yeah, when I disagree with Boris, I'll tell him. <laughs> but, the, but, it's like, but the flunky side as well, like, I know, like, people, when you say that, it makes David Cameron look ridiculous. But, like, anybody who is normal would not want to hang around after they've been brutally demoted in a job. Like, you would feel mm. the fact that you had been brutally, publicly dem- demoted. All the people who used to hang on your every word now can't bother to give you the time of day. You would want to get out of that situation. David Cameron, and this is what we've always said about David Cameron, he's a very normal person by senior politician standards. David Cameron couldn't hack that situation. He just couldn't bear it. I know that makes him sound venal, and silly, but we're all venal and silly, except Theresa May, because she's just so unaware of anybody else in the world. And also, like, like Ted Heath spent forty years just engaged in the world's longest song. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, I think, I think you're right. You know, yeah, look, yeah absolutely. If you're, if you, if you were, you know, chief executive of a business, and then they told you you could, you know, basically come in on your off days. Um, which says something, but I mean, it would be very difficult, but I mean, what it seems to me is it shows a fundamental lack of judgment. He's got some, it's not, his his wife's family in particular are frankly staggeringly rich. You know, the sensible thing to do is to spend 10 years basically not saying anything except almost, but it's almost like being a member of the royal family. You spend 10 years sort of basically do talk only talking about stuff that you know it would be really difficult to ever disagree with outs at the outside um he's got the role at the outside society i mean i'm i'm i i i always find i know, I know some people don't you know I, I know he might may feel that he wouldn't want to but i'm always slightly surprised he never talks about disabilities and children because obviously he had a son who who, who had a very severe disability and, and very sadly passed passed away when he, he was very young and I'm surprised that you know you could take those two issues. You could, you know, you could become a spokesperson for those two organisations. Everyone would, no one would, you know, like make a load of really boring speeches. Turn up and, you know, yes, it would be really dull. Write your, write your memoirs that I can't imagine reading. But you know, whatever. Well, I, 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 um, and I then, have not and read then, them. So, so just on his memoirs, I have not read them. But uh, uh, a, a former UKIP MEP that we went to uni with did send me a page of his, uh, of his memoirs that referenced me. I was oh, referenced... because of the because of the question time. Trip. Because of the question time debate. Oh, I'm delighted for you and <laughs> embarrassed at the same time. And also uh, the inexorable march of time. Well, yes and no, to be honest, Luke. Like, I, I didn't look young then, did I? 
No, this this is the thing. You've always looked ravaged, Will. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Simon, you were saying. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to when you talk about for you know there are there are former prime ministers. It's it's a really weird. I mean, the obvious, the two I think who seem to have done the job reasonably well, to my mind, and I'm sure you'll get the howls of anguish, are John Major and Gordon Brown because um, you know John Major. No, I wouldn't. And the thing with Gordon, I mean, John Major, who obviously became rather more vocal on the European issue, sort of, but he did that like... Completely lost win. his mind um, on the European issue. Well, no, no, I, I, but he, anyway, the thing is, no, he's been no, out of power for 25 years at this point, and so therefore had kind of earned, he'd earned the credibility of being someone who never said anything and never did anything controversial, and so was therefore able, and therefore burned through, was able to, had credibility you know, to burn through. Millen did that. Macmillan yeah. did the same thing. Um, yeah, he yeah, had, absolutely. He had like a late winter, uh, like Indian summer in like 84 to 86. Talking about made... fa- selling off the family silver. Yeah. yeah, like when you just really laid into factorism from the House of Lords. Sorry, carry on, Simon. Yeah, and I, and I mean, Gordon Brown, again, I mean, there was a lot of complaints because Gordon Brown obviously <laughs> lost the 2010 election and then was kind of in this weird position of like, oh, I've gone from being at the very top of British politics for... 25 years or so you know because he was shadow chancellor then chancellor then you know he was a powerful shadow chancellor and chancellor you know uh, and then obviously prime minister to being the member of parliament for Kekodian and Cowdenbeath and knowing you know and so he didn't say anything for five years in parliament basically and then he quietly stood down his seat was lost to the SNP um, but he very and he quietly went away and he ran a sort of charitable foundation the office of Gordon and Sarah Brown which you know mostly did loads of stuff on yeah it was on mostly on education and the developing world again the sort of thing no one can disagree with and then he and now he's become this and now he's doing this thing of going around and talking about getting the COVID vaccine into the developing world and it's like people can't and, and basically if you spend long in it, because with John Major and Gordon Brown, who people utterly hated when they left office, they kept, they kept quiet for long enough that when they came back and actually set, had something to say, everyone had forgotten that they really, really hated them when they stopped being prime minister. Uh, I mean, I mean, I, 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 hang on, can I just can I just reply yeah. to that? Well, I will say I will say I will say what I will say one thing about John Major. It's not it's not like John Major didn't go away and make serious amounts of money. Yeah. The Carlisle the Carlisle group is like a premier sort of lobbying and influence peddling shop. And argue and arguably and arguably arguably the legislation that Cameron introduced um, around lobbying actually makes it harder for ex-prime ministers to go away and work specifically in those kind of lobbying shops. But yeah the Carlisle group um, which was a yeah it it had some. It had some very shady um, clients back in the nineties. Well, well, the, the famous. It was, it, was discreet, it was discreet enough that it never got traced back. That it never really damaged Major's reputation. The the, fam- the famous one of Carl- of Major and Carlisle Group is on uh, is on the um, the nine eleven or the day after. No, it was nine eleven. Yeah. Um. He he he's staying in the British Embassy in in. In Washington or DC or the British consulate, and I think it's the British. Was it the British consulate in New York, Luke? 
It was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he was like, guess who I had dinner? I had a, a, brec- a breakfast meeting with today, uh, Mr. Bin Laden. Because, um, as listeners may not be aware of this, um, Osama Bin Laden was estranged from his family. Um, you know, the whole, you know, jihad, Mujahideen stuff. Um, but like the Bin, Laden, the Bin Ladens are like a seriously wealthy, connected family in like Western Gulf uh, international capitalism. You know, they they. When, they when, have... when, we're, when we're talking seriously wealthy, we're talking like Bruce Wayne levels of seriously yeah, like wealthy. Own a huge proportion of Rupert Murdoch's businesses, stuff like that. And the uh, major had been having a breakfast meeting with them. When their ne'er do well relative was a plot into uh, uh, fly some planes into American buildings. That's remarkable. Uh, I did not know that. That yeah. is absolutely remarkable. I mean, you know. Um, no, I mean, but, ma- ma- John, Major, John Major was actually able to leave the United States uh, when the when there were when the when all international flights were grounded because he got the same like private Learjet as some of the Bin Ladens as they were spirited out of the yes. country. Yes, he did, didn't he? I forgot the last part of the story. <laughs> Are we saying that we think John Major did 9-11? <laughs> because I think that the lawyers would have some things to say about that. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying John Major did 9-11, but I, what I am saying, Simon, is proof that he didn't. <laughs> now, now if, if, he, if he was massive behind 9-11, does that mean it was game, set, match to Al-Qaeda? No, 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 no. Because if, if no, sorry, John Major... Simon, do you, I, you may not get the joke. No, so, no. sorry, but, Will, that's, that, that's, the, that's, the, that's the episode title, right? Yeah, this is a very nerdy, you always get the joke, because when Major came back with the opt-out for the Master Treaty, it was declared as game, set, and match for, for the UK. <laughs> Okay, well, let's before what, what what I what I was going to say is that you can tell it wasn't because John, <laughs> no 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 you can tell it's not jo- for, for for legal reasons the men there are multitudes of reasons because John Major is not a terrorist mastermind but significantly there's been an awful lot of time Ma- there's been an awful lot of time talking to the IRA though exactly true but John Major right the only thing are basically other than making money that John Major really cared about at this point was, of course, cricket. And it's an appalling piece of cricket to use multiple things to throw at only two dick-like um, <laughs> objects. You do, you do say that, though, but the, two, the Twin Towers do kind of look like a really big one. All right, all right. <laughs> okay, I, I think... We've, we've gone, we've no, no, can, I, can I make my point about John Major? Like, but, like, but I think that's the thing. Like, I don't think John Major had a particularly honourable uh, premiership. Um, but... The key thing is, he had the contacts to have a successful one. Like the Bush family loved him, so they yeah. put him into the Carlisle group. He, I, I don't think Major or Brown were particularly hated by the time they they left office. Brown probably had more people who hated him. We also had more people who loved him. I think most people knew by '97 that it wasn't really Major's fault, uh, and Major was like the best Tory of a bad bunch. Um, and, and like, well, I mean, it, it, I mean, also, I mean, also, obviously, the 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 eight hundred pound gorilla in the room here is Tony Blair. Well, sorry, before we get before we get to Tony Blair, let me just finish my point. Um, but like, that's the whole point. Like, Cameron can't 
do stuff like that. I think the great tragedy for David Cameron is how he treated Gordon Brown. Because I think Gordon Brown really was trying to be a good ex-Prime Minister in a like emotionally aware way, rather than being like a bull-headed rhinoceros like Theresa May is. Um, and that's why he stopped speaking. And like, remember, like, that was common. Like, people talk about how Ted Heath uh, stayed as an MP for decades. The guy barely ever spoke in the House of Commons. Now, Winston Churchill stayed in the House of Commons um, until just before he died. Never again spoke in the House of Commons after being Prime Minister. But, like, that sort of behaviour isn't accepted now. You know, it, like, the idea that you can be an MP and never get involved in debates... Like, that's not what we expect of MPs now. You're more scrutinised as a backbench MP. And the, like, the kind of sotto voice idea, well, if, you're, if, you know, if your constituency happens to have an ex-Prime Minister as the constituency MP, you're going to get goodies. That doesn't really wash with people. But, like, Gordon Brown would have been an amazing head of the IMF, would have just done such a good job in that role. And it was so petty and vindictive and short-sighted of Osborne Cameron to stop him getting it. Not least for the fact of, why the hell did the French get to, to pick the IMF uh, president all the time? Like, we're the financial capital of, of, of Europe. Surely we should get to pick somebody, because for those who don't know, the World Bank, is, the World Bank president is always American. The IMF president is always European. And by European, I mean French person. Um, and so it's like Brown, they should have supported Brown's bid to be IMF president because that would have kind of got into this virtuous cycle of trying to actually help our guys get international roles, um, which has just completely fallen by the wayside. Like, I can't remember the last time a British Prime Minister had a serious international. I don't. I don't think it's happened in recent time. I think. No, I don't think it's happened. I think. I think mm. the closest you get is Arthur Henderson as Labour leader. He uh, as former Labour leader, very nicely actually. Ramsay Macdonald, when he was head of the national government, appointed Arthur Henderson to chair the international disarmament conferences of the nineteen thirties. I mean, I was there. There is one more recent example. Go on. Uh, Peter Carrington becoming uh, head of NATO. Well, yeah, but I was thinking of like either prime ministers or leaders of parties. But you know, I mean, yeah. By well, we, thought... we've had two. For, we've had two British defence secretaries head of NATO because George Robertson did it as well yeah. for a while. Um, but but so, like yeah, I mean, before we move off this topic, oh, just, 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 sorry, sorry. The thing for me is what we need to do. This is what I would do with former prime ministers. One, you say you get more money if you stay in Parliament, either as a MP or a Lord, because um, I think it's I, I, I get the argument for them not to stay as MPs, but like actually, you no, know, they can still be Lords and still be of service to the country. Um, if we're going to have House of Lords, former Prime Minister should be in there. Secondly, I would start trying to get. The, I would start. Found them out to be ambassadors, to be czars, to be representatives. Like it's like this uh, COP twenty six thing. Cameron would have been perfect for it. I mean, I think there were issues um, with um, 
um, international aid. That meet why it wasn't a goer, but like Cameron, not now, but Cameron could have been the ambassador for to America. He'd probably been a quite good ambassador to America. You know, just you, we've got to find these people stuff to do. Sorry, there, there are two more points I'm gonna make. Thirdly, they they do they should be put onto a proper declaration of interests. You know, they do receive public money, and the the the, the big secret is the reason why they're so quick to leave Parliament. Is because that way you don't have to declare what uh, what you uh, where you earn your money from, um, and where you're being given money from. And fourthly, people talk about changing rules, and like I get that impulse, but like, it, okay, this might sound a bit naive, but it's not about rules; it's about what's right, and the message has to go out to senior politicians. In the, sorry, in the Godfather, there is that there is that joke when when the gangsters, are, like one of the gangsters, asks another gangster to make like a really over specific promise, and the, uh, Don Barsini, who's chairing a meeting, goes, "No, oh, come on, gentlemen, we are all reasonable men. We do not have to talk like we are lawyers. Like the idea is, you don't push your behaviour." to the absolute letter of the law, that you actually think what is right, what makes me seem like a, a sound person, what makes what will make people think highly of me in, in a 20, 30 years to follow. And Blair, Blair before, and I'm going to let Luke have a bit of a rant about that, because I think it's worth saying, Cameron now, they just didn't give a shit about that. They didn't. They, they they just wanted to get as much money as they could, and they'd do whatever it took. You know, I mean, we haven't really said what Cameron did. It. He basically just lobbied everybody, trying to get his mate out of bankruptcy. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, I, no, sorry, I, sorry, I, can, can I can I just finish this point, Luke? Sorry. Okay. So what I would do? There's been a long running thing where because the royal family hates Tony Blair. And because Tony Blair is dodgy, Tony Blair can't get a Knight of the Garter, uh, which is a which is basically one of the only forms of a knighthood that the Queen controls herself. Only meant to, only twenty three people who get it controlled by the monarch. Don't give it to Cameron either. And now there's three vacancies um, with Prince Philip having died. Give Theresa May Gordon Brown, the knight and dame of the uh, dame and knight of the garter, and let it be known that they're getting it now. And Cameron and Blair are being left to one side because they've done their retirements properly, and those two are scoundrels, and we should all think that think less of them. There's got we can't we can't live in a society where powerful people's behaviour is only governed by law. They should think about what is decent. They should think about what is right. And we as a society have to start bringing to bear more moral pressure on these pricks so they know what they, they, they are and, not, and are not meant to do. Yeah, I, I, think, I, I think that's an interesting... I think that's a really, I mean, I, I... You know, if you're going to have an honours system, which I'm, you know, not naturally a fan of, like then I then I do think that that's the only logical use for it. Now I think the interesting question is whether Gordon Brown would accept 
um, and on a, I don't, I don't know. He's, he's a bit because he's a, he's, I, I, he's not. He'd, accepted, he'd accept it from the Queen. He'd accept it from the Queen. Actually, yeah, because he's, he's got that kind of old Labour vibe, isn't he? Of like, yeah, you know, he'd, he'd, yeah, he'd accept it from the Queen. Yeah, I mean, again, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna belabor the point about Tony Blair. Hey. We'll be, we'll be here. Yeah. <laughs> We'll be here. Belabor or belie? Yeah, um, but yeah, because we'll be here all night, and I think we, I think we all know in a vaguely dream. But Tony Blair really did disgrace himself, and I think disgrace to some extent the office of prime minister because no, because at least what at least what Cameron did was lobbying his was lobbying his own government, whereas. You know, Blair got Blair going around the world basically being a gun for hire for like the government of Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, uh, Kazakhstan, the Saudis. It's just, it's just gross. It's just grotesque. And I still don't, I still don't, I, I mean, obviously, you know, Iraq, the Iraq war is going to loom largest over Tony Blair's legacy. But for me, I don't think he's, I don't think. I don't think we know enough about exactly what he did in those first years after ceasing to be prime minister. And I don't think he's ever been held account properly um, in the court of public opinion. By the way, there is a really good book called Blair Inc. that tries to disentangle all of this. And it, it's, it's an incredibly depressing, but incredibly interesting read. Um, so do we, before we move on, do we just want to talk about the politics um of this um yeah i mean i i am not convinced that labor is handling this awfully well they uh, and and uh, we do let's uh we're gonna ding both stephen bush and for the first time alba ray so two dings ding ding um um she's earned she, it she's earned it she's earned it um um i'm trying to just just have my you know Interested in Northern Ireland hip, hipster cred. I was listening to a New Statesman podcast as she was recommending Northern Ireland Spotlights, uh, a show on the 100 years of Northern Ireland. I'd already, well, I was also, I was also I'd, interested I'd, I'd, I'd already watched it. I was like, yeah, I watched it. It's well, great. I, I watch it. No, I, I was, was it, it did, it, it did sort of add to the, no, it's one of those things I need to watch every weekend. Um, but I, I did also, oh, although okay. there is clearly, there is clearly another Will who's obsessed with Northern Ireland, considering that the U.S. asked, you asked us about Northern Ireland came from a different person. Yes, Will, yes. <laughs> that was not me. Um, that was no. not me. Um, but no, so like, um, they, they both keep begging this thing off. It's so funny how Boris Johnson um, has persuaded people that his government is is a new government, and it's like, well, not really, because Boris Johnson caused his two predecessors to resign. So, like, it's it's perfectly rational, and like both his former predecessors clearly hate his guts. So it's perfectly rational that the people say, "Oh yeah, that guy who successfully ran a referendum campaign." Um, against uh, David Cameron, that guy who quit Theresa May's government and basically nuked her uh, Brexit deal. Yeah, that guy is not of the same faction um, as as um, as them. And I, you know, 
people talk about Major, but the thing with Major was is Major had been promoted, Major had been made a big political figure by by Thatcher. He was her handpicked successor to defeat Michael Heseltine. Boris Johnson was a big political figure um, in an entertainment sense before anybody had ever heard of David Cameron in the, in the wider country. Admittedly, you know, David Cameron did encourage Johnson to go for London mayoralty, but, you know, Johnson won that on his own. Theresa May did rescue him as foreign secretary, but, you know, he'd already had the achievements beforehand. Perfectly rational for people to see Boris Johnson as, an, as a figure independent of May and Cameron. And so I just think this kind of bashing of um, Cameron doesn't really help Labour. It's not track. It's it's you know when they've been talking about this, it's tracked. The Tories open up quite a big opinion poll lead, like and which we know is about the vaccine, but it certainly shows it's not having an impact. It's not. People keep saying this is cutting through. There is no evidence it's cutting through at all. And I think also, to me, like the talk of Tory sleeves, I think is really counterproductive, because. There were Tories who, in the, in the 1990s, in like 96, 97, were trying to make arguments based, based on the winter of discontent work. And they didn't work because that was like 20 years ago and every normal person had forgotten about it, even though it was very resonant for um, people, you know, people who are very heavily engaged in politics. Likewise, no, no, Tory Sleeves is now more than 20 years ago. And I just think it doesn't resonate. And I, I think in a weird way, it's the opposite. In the 90s, threat of like renewed industrial action, whilst there was a bit of concern about Labour getting back, in, back into power, the unions were so clearly beaten down. Um, that it wasn't really seen as a credible thing. I think with Tory sleeves, nobody hears the Tory part of it now. Like back in the 90s, there was a very real sense that the Tories were unusually sleazy, that they were unusually likely to be doing corrupt deals, they were unusually likely to have uh, esoteric sexual interests uh, involving fruit. Um um, Luke gets that joke. Um, um, whereas, you know, now, you know, look, we've gone through Bernie Eccleston, gone through cash uh, loans for others. We've gone through the expense scandal. We've, we've gone, you know, we've gone through a lot. And so people just see it as kind of a plague in all your houses issue. And, and, and so I, 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 this is why I think you need to focus this on the reasons why it's massive for the delivery of public services and not just doing this blunderbuss Tory sleaze approach. Because I just don't think it's going to resonate in the way it did um, uh, back in the 90s. And it's certainly not going to convince people that Boris Johnson is David Cameron's sock puppet or anything crazy like that. Yeah. I think I think there are there are, there are, there are two points I'd make. 
first thing is I agree, I agree with you, Will, that I don't think this is I, I think this is cut through to the extent that it's nuked David Cameron's reputation, but that's neither here nor there, to be honest. Um <laughs> excuse me. I think just to add two points. The first is Dave, well, the first is at the moment, all we have proof of is that David Cameron attempted to lobby the government. As far as anybody knows, that lobbying failed. So, you know, to quote Sideshow Bob, I was I was convicted, I was convicted of a crime, <laughs> I was convicted of a crime that I didn't commit. Does anybody give a, a prize for attempt a Nobel Prize for attempted chemistry? Um so I mean I think from I think from the government's point of view, they can they can do the old um, George W. Bush line from Enron, which is, you know, if they asked for help, they didn't find any. I think if you if we, if it comes if it comes out that that lobbying was in some way successful in terms of granting Greensill um you know, aid that it was, you know, aid that it shouldn't have got. I think that's that that be, that then suddenly becomes a whole different ballgame. The other thing is with the Tory sleeves, you've got to remember that Major at the beginning of his premiership tried to set quite a high moral tone. You know, there's the whole back to basics thing. Sorry, sorry can I can I can I, I just know, go in I, there? I know what you're about. I know what you're about to say. Even though that speech wasn't actually about sort of a return to Victorian morality. It was actually about sort of um, education and a return to a more rigorous curriculum. But it was interpreted at, at the time and later as a sort of... But, but, but do you remember why? Do you remember why it was interpreted like that? No, go on. So, so it wasn't at the beginning, by the way. It was in 93, I want to say. Um, <laughs> Tim... Tim Collins, 92-93, definitely after the 92 election, either way. Tim Collins, as a young Tory press uh, secretary, that was the spin he gave to it. So it wasn't the media getting the wrong end of the stick. It was a press secretary getting the wrong end of the stick and briefing that like, this is like a... A, 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 a broadside against the permissive society okay. and they're going horribly wrong. Well, my, my point is that that did two things. Firstly, it created, for, like you say, for the, the sort of sexual escapades, it created a permission structure for the press to go after that kind of thing. But second, it always, it always made the sort of revelations around the dodgy deals more damaging because the impression was that you had set yourself up to be of good character. Now, the thing about Boris Johnson is, love him or loathe him, he's a cat. He is. He is a little. He is a little bit of a wrong one, and no one's ever. No one's ever tried to. No one's ever tried to pretend otherwise. Least of all, Boris Johnson. I don't. Think, I don't think that's going to shield him if you come up with cases of genuine public corruption. But I do think it kind of implicitly, and I would say unfairly, raises the bar. Also, but one thing I do think people need to remember is like the financial aspects of uh, sleaze in the nineties were actually really bad. Like I think, pe like people do kind of forget this, like the stuff about. Because sleaze has been a pervasive thing, inverted commas, um, 
for the past 20, 30 years. There has been like a subconscious dialing back of what a scandal is. Like the stuff of like Bernie Eccleston getting a exemption for F1 or people who loan money to political parties getting on us. These weren't scandals in the 90s because you didn't know about them in the 90s because political parties didn't publish their accounts. Like, I really like John Ellich's newsletter. Um, I think it confirms that any writer you like, you get more of them and more of them um, um, if they go on Substack. And so I'm enjoying his newsletter. But his big broadside against Robert Jenrick, when it was like people who resigned for this for the 90s, was the most stupidest thing I've ever read. You wouldn't know about in the 90s. Everybody knew the toys were doing stuff like this for their donors, but you couldn't prove it because no, you didn't know who was d- donating to it. Like, it was a common belief that the brewery and tobacco industry were piling in, you know, hundreds of thousands into the Tory party behind the cloak of anonymity. What the 90s sleaze stories were about was literally Tory MPs being given cash. Cash! Not cushy consultancy gigs, but brown envelopes full of used bills to ask certain questions. And Jonathan Aiken basically being put on a retainer by Mohammed Al-Fayed whilst being in all sorts of sensitive ministerial positions. These were big, big scandals. There was no pass in it. There was no complicated thing. There isn't anything on this level in recent years. And yes, I do include people fizzling their expenses, as bad as that was. People forget just how bad those Tory sleaze allegations were. I mean, for crying out loud, you know, people think if a, if a politician leaves his, it leaves his wife, that's a scandal now. You literally had a Tory MP start dating an 18-year-old whilst he was still married and the association wouldn't kick him out. Which one was that? Piers Merchant. Uh, oh, yeah, that was the one with the really uncomfortable kissing his wife, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. 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 I, I, I think this, like, like I, I, I agree with some of that and I disagree with some of I, I disagree as well, because I think that, yes, we haven't reached... We haven't yet, there, there is no evidence yet, I'm being careful, um, that we've got any Neil Hamiltons in government at the moment. We haven't, the, you know, we haven't, I, I think the great, one well, of the great been, lines... They have in Wales, Neil Hamilton is still technically... <laughs> no, that's, that's true, not. literally Neil yeah. Hamilton, yeah. yeah. But I th- <laughs> so I think, I mean, I, I'm always reminded of... Um, the greatest moment in Question Time history, which is a short list, um, was <laughs> when... When Ian Hislop was on a panel with Mary Archer, uh, and uh. Um, she made a crack about, you know, as someone who's like a chief executive of some local healthcare trust, and also the wife of a prison orderly at North Sea, um, North whatever camp prison Archer was in at the time, and she was kind of going, oh ha ha ha, everything's funny, and then and Hislop just looked at her for like thirty seconds. He he'd been like hitting her for like ten minutes or so about this. And then he and then he eventually, you know, and she went, Oh, do you want to take another free kick? And he went, The thing is, every time the Labour government does it, because this is like 1990, it's whenever he was in jail, which was about 2000, it was about 2000, because he was going yeah. to be 
candidate for London mayor in that Oh, because I was just say there's that brilliant scene where he goes, you won't say that when I'm mayor. It's true, Jeremy, Jeffrey, we've never said that when you're mayor. <laughs> um, but no, he turned, he turned around and went, Every time we try and pull up the Labour Party for anything they're doing, and they, you know, they were doing dodgy stuff, unsurprisingly. They, you know, governments always do. All they turn around and go, look at look at all the Tories, they're in jail. And there was this kind of, you know, Aitken, Archer, Hamilton was cleared, but you know, had to go through the courts. You know, like there was this moment. But I think it, the expenses scandal is a really interesting thing. And it's interesting you brought that up and it's sort of in the next year, the next year economically is going to be really hard and it's going to be really hard on a lot of people. You know, what we were talking about at the beginning, uh, communities like Nottingham, like Wolverhampton, it's going to be worse, I would imagine, in those smaller communities as well. They're going to see a lot of businesses going down. We're going to see a lot of people losing their jobs. We've ha already seen about three million people who were, you know, in self-employed positions, not, you know, having to dig into their savings, losing their homes, you know. If the sense comes out, and there's all the texts between James Dyson and Boris Johnson, which okay, he could he could kind of go on um, he could go on at PMQs and would go, oh, I, I did everything I could to get PPE in the crisis. But if it sticks, if this sense that the gut the country is run by a sort of little a clique, a cabal, the sort of clique we had running the country under Macmillan in the late, late 1950s, early 1960s. If we get this sense that this is a bunch, this, is, this country is run by a very small little network of people, and if you can make that network feel like actually that is a continuation of the last 10 years of government, at the same time that people are seeing their local butcher, their local restaurant, their local theatre going out of business, which is the sort of thing that, like, it, obviously it costs people jobs and it costs people opportunities, but it also damages their quality of life because the things they were used to doing aren't possible anymore, then I think there is the potential that there will be a backlash because you'll go, look, here's a government who aren't looking out for us, aren't looking out for the, thing, the interests of the things we care about, but are, that their mates, their mates are still all right. And if that that becomes the, the that, so it's not, the, it's not sleaze so much. And I think by the way, that also can be combined into the outsourcing stuff because a lot of this outsourcing stuff, you know, where the contracts come from is, you know, some of it's all right, some of it not so much. But if it, if this becomes, you know, so it's, it's, Obviously, you can't fight like the, the Corbynites were right. You can't you couldn't have fought the 1997 election in 2017. You shouldn't have fought the 2017 election either. But that's neither here nor certainly not the 2019. You know, you can't fight 20. You, know, you can't run 20 year old campaigns. But that doesn't mean that talking about sort of dodgy dealing and corruption isn't necessarily a fruitful path. But but, but you again, it's that thing of. What you convey may work. I don't know. Do we think the British public is so stupid they don't see that Boris Johnson runs this country with a small tight cabal? I think sometimes Occam's razor, they do notice because it's pretty fucking obvious and they're okay with it. Um, but none of that comes from sleaze. Like the Labour Party is picking a phrase 
that resonates to us because we're all po- politics nerds. And uh, I don't know about you, Simon, but I remember Toy Seas. I'm sure you do, Luke. Um, um, you know, what the, the word they should be using is favoritism. Yeah. One wall for. For for you know one wall for D one wall for Dow you know that it's that that that's the that's the itch that they should be trying to scratch but they're not that like the Tories banging on about a winter of discontent in the nineties they're just playing the hits and it, it it excites people who already hate the Tories I yeah, just, I, mean, I just is- do not think this is cutting through. I think, like I said, I think it depends what you mean by cutting through. It's cutting through, I think, in the sense that people are paying some degree of attention to it. But they're, they're paying attention to it in the sense of, oh, David Cameron, you know, that, that he shouldn't be doing that. Like yeah. I said, the, the, one thing, the one thing that's going to drastically change the narrative here is if there is some proof that, yeah, the, the, the government did something because... You know, a, a lobbying scandal in which an ex-prime minister improperly attempted to lobby the government but didn't get anything from it. That's not really got, it's not really got any legs. It's, it's, it's an interesting process story, but not really much more than that. I, can, can I go further than that? And I think Labour is making a big mistake. Like, I think deep down Labour knows they haven't got the goods because they are now trying to expand the issues they're raising. So this Dyson story, like... Oh, that is the biggest non-story ever. Well, no, there's a bigger non-story that I'll talk about in a second as our segue. But, like, the Dyson story, it's like... Yeah, look, there, there, there is a quirk of tax law that if you bring overseas employees into a company to work on an issue for a few, for, for, for a few weeks, few months they get hit by UK income tax and they have to pay UK income tax because they are earning their income whilst working in the UK. And James Dyson had been asked by the government to develop these ventilators that we all thought we needed to combat coronavirus. We didn't actually need them. Ventilators were making it worse in most circumstances. And he was like, okay, yeah, I will stop what I'm doing, what my company's doing, to, to, to try and see if we can do something on this ventilator issue. But, like, if I'm bringing engineers in, I don't want them being hit by income tax whilst they're there, because, like, they're coming over to do you a favour. Is that okay? It's like, well, yeah. Yeah. Of C- course it is. Yeah, but the point, the, the fact that I, my, I the, the you got But the thing is, if you're running a small business in a small town, you know, in a in, let's do that in a small town in the Red Wall. If you're running these organisations, you don't have the opportunity to text the prime minister now. Whether or not it was a reasonable request, and it sounds that you know certainly sounds like you know there was you. Know, I'm not sure if we, because uh, unemployment is going okay. to go up in the next year. Business failure well, I, I is mean, going I to mean, go up in the next year. Can, can I uh, can I come in? Because I you know, I, like you too. I know I, I I am the son of uh, 
a small business in not a red wall, but in effect, a marginal that purplish wall, purplish wall. Well, it is it, it swung to, I mean, that it, it's, uh, it's a swing seat in the East Midlands, but and it has trended conservative in a very big way over the past decade because I like, did the, the big secret is, is that the real red wall is the Midlands and how Labour just got slaughtered. Um, in the Midlands, um, in in the three election, the four elections of the twenty tens, but like, what, what left wingers and liberals and the media argument for is why did the government, why did Boris Johnson and James Dyson not go through the proper paperwork? Any small business that you that you will talk to. All they will bitch and moan about is how much, as I was saying earlier, how much fucking paperwork government makes you fill in. Like when my my dad came around a couple of weeks ago, and he was ranting unendingly about the changes to how he books his market stall. Uh, so I just do not think I I I, keep, I know it makes perfect sense if you if 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 you live in a world of bureaucracy and form filling and medium to big size businesses it makes perfect sense why a small business would say well it's just completely unfair that uh dyson can text the prime minister no surely the small business will object but i just think the small business will go well at least somebody's able to cut through all the bureaucracy that these you know jobs worth in the council keep tying us up in I don't think you'll cut through with those type of people for a second because they're not the type of people who want to go through bureaucracy themselves and they're not the type of people who want other people to go through bureaucracy. And also, and also, Simon, I do think you... I mean, I do think you have to be a little bit careful what you wish for here because, like... You don't, you don't want, you don't want the prime minister to become this ivory tower figure that is, that it, that it's, I mean, that it's, that it's difficult for people to reach. And you, you wouldn't exactly, you wouldn't. Yes, Dyson is a successful company, but you wouldn't exactly call James Dyson like inside them any kind of particular magic circle. And yeah, big, big, com, big, com, big companies, successful companies are going to get easier access to government simply because of the fact that they are successful and also i i mean this is this is a different conversation for a different podcast probably but i wouldn't bank on the fact that that next year is going to be really difficult in terms of unemployment and growth there's pretty um decent circumstantial evidence that next year you know that the, the, there are going to be long, there are definitely going to be long term economic side effects of COVID, no doubt. But actually, 2022 could be like a really good year because you're going to get a load of pent up demand released into the economy. I mean, this is so, a big, it, it's contradictory. Most people don't believe it. But actually, a lot of middle class, upper class people have saved a fortune over the past year. I have, and and uh, and uh, uh, and that money has to go somewhere, and it's probably going to go into fun times. Um, and of course, as we move to permanent working from home, you probably get a lot of people changing living arrangements, doing up houses, stuff like that. 
I mean, it's it's not the perfect uh, indicator, but the housing sector is doing a is doing alarmingly well. So I, I think the idea we're heading for a bust is probably wrong. We're probably heading for an unsustainable boom. Um, the the um, do you have any thoughts on that before I bring on my my next example? That act as a segue. Go on, man. No, I was asking Simon. Mm. No, no, I'm always excited by a new segue. Um, so, so the other one, which is even more ridiculous, is, and I think this talks to Luke's point. Not was, really. Um, was um, Ed Woodward, the uh, uh, executive vice chairman of Manchester United, had a meeting with Boris Johnson last week, and Labour tried to make this another front of their anti-sleaze campaign. Like, kind of insinuating, or maybe he talked to Boris Johnson about the European Super League. And it's like, but Boris Johnson opposed the European Super League. He helped stop it, as we'll talk about later. And as Luke says, Prime Ministers have to talk to people. They have to be able to meet people. Like, by all accounts, that meeting was about getting fans back into... um, into stadiums and so like I just think the Labour Party knows they haven't got the guts yes they've managed to nuke David Cameron's reputation they've probably taken Rishi Sunak down a couple of pegs which won't hurt Johnson at all Um, but now they're flailing round trying to find something I think the story is dead to be honest Um, um, I think the story is dead um, I don't think they've got the goods. So anyway, uh, talking of the European Super League, Luke, uh, where was not? Do you, here's a question for you, Luke. If you'd actually been bought by by North Korea <laughs> um, back in the mid noughties do you think not, not the mid noughties Not the mid noughties Two thousand and ten. Oh, sorry, 2010. Further, further along than you think. Um, do you think Notts County would have been in the European Super League? I mean, it's a, sh- it's a shame Rich isn't here as an Arsenal fan. That's why we wanted him on the podcast. Well, as an American, so we can, like, point and jeer at him. Yeah, well. but it's just, because it's just like, my sort of, I mean, I think, I think, I think it's, I think it was a dumb idea, but it doesn't affect me at all. I'm kind of, I'm kind of like Arthur Dent. Um, in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where he's trying to get his head around the fact that the Earth's been destroyed, and it's that line, New York City no longer exists. That didn't trigger anything, because he never really believed it existed in the first place. And that's kind of how I feel about sort of top-class European football. I really don't care, because it has nothing to do with actual football, as I understand it. I mean, to me, the weird thing for me, actually, um, in a strange way, well, I mean, there, there's been, I don't know if anybody's noticed listening to this, there's been a theme of 90s nostalgia in this podcast, which we did not plan to do, but it has definitely been there. Um, and I, it just made me very nostalgic for the 90s, because, like, uh, no, I'll hold my hands up. You know, I'm, I am not the greatest football fan at the moment. I, a combination of the rise of Man City. Um, and then just being busy with like you know relationship 
kids, stuff like that, meant I really dropped down to following football closely in 2014. But like before that, I was like, I was like, I was an obsessive without being obsessive for a particular club. Like my, Leicester City's my my the club I support. Um, um, but 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 like I'm not obsessed with them. Um, but like I would used to watch you know, most of the Premier League games every weekend. I'd watch the Champions League. Um, but like the season I really got into your into football was the the season after the World Cup '98. I'd flirted with it with football a bit in '94 '96 with the international tournament, but '98 loved the World Cup. Was there watching it with my parents, cheering on France because I hate Brazil. I fucking hate Brazil. That stuck. Uh, one of my favorite football games of all time is uh, France versus Brazil in the. 2006 World Cup. I just think that that game is amazing. Core final game. So that one of the Dan's best games of all time. But anyway, um, and like after in that 98 99 season, I think just after that season, 99 2000 season, uh, oh, sorry, 98 99 season is um, when you get the, um, the, the Manchester United treble season. And that Manchester United side was a special side. I know I'm biased. It's the first season I really followed league football. But like Dwight York and Andy Cole were just special strike force. They were just bags of fun. And and we got Sky TV off it. So, hey. Um, but anyway, so... But then, obviously, 19, at the, towards the end of 99, that's when you get the first real serious talk of a European Super League. And I remember, like, buying five newspapers some days to get all the different angles of what's happening with the European Super League. And I can't remember what my idea was. I don't think I was against it, but I don't think I was for it. I just thought it was interesting. Mm-hmm. And I kind of feel like that now, in a sense of... Um, as I said, it gave me a lot of nostalgia for those arguments back then. And like the kind of what it means for European football is is like genuinely interesting. Uh, before we go into that, uh, Simon, how has your reaction been to the wall to wall football politics talk? I mean, this is this in many respects is the amount is is the most interesting aspect of football now. I think, and like no, I, I mean, I I'm not. Look, I, I always say that, you know, I have the misfortune to be an Ipswich fan. Uh, it was a geographical error um, <laughs> with my parents that, you know, uh, we happened to grow up in Suffolk and so we didn't really have a choice. Um, also with a, with a father who doesn't understand the appeal of football at all. And so, like, we didn't have any, I didn't have any inherited legacy. Um, I, I've really, the Super League, the whole Super League chat has been incredibly entertaining. It's involved almost all of my favourite things. Lots of people, ha- lots of people complaining. Um, a completely harebrained scheme. Lots of rich people being very embarrassed. Um, and and then the norm, and then and it all being over in forty eight hours. I mean, literally, the European Super League as a concept lasted as long as Pat Glass's shadow cabinet career. So, <laughs> like, <laughs> as a, you should. There, there is a Twitter handle. Lasted longer than the European Super League. 
you should submit that uh, to it. Uh, I did. I did tweet that particular observation because, but I think it was so esoteric that most people would have gone, "Who the hell was Pat Glass?" And because if you weren't following the um, machinations of the Corbyn Shadow Cabinet, I think twenty sixteen, <laughs> uh, you you won't have that, that, that. Like no one cares. But no, it's um, but it was it was just superb. It was a perfect news story. Lots of people getting very upset, very angry. I mean, Luke is of the three of us, the one who I know you were saying, you know, you don't regard this is outside of your footballing universe and, and you know, obviously yeah. not currently in the National League. I am, I, I, I don't mind football. I find, mo like, as with most sport, I think it's most interesting as a thing to write about. Um, you know, I'll, I'll read a lot of football journalism and football reporting. And actually, the thing I have found really interesting with the pandemic, as a sort of casual football fan, I've completely fallen out of. I, I, I couldn't. I don't think I could have named who the quarterfinalists in the Champions League were this year, which is not a thing I would normally say. I have found, and there's no particular reason because it's not like I watch Champions League games because they're all on Sky now. No, it's just somehow I fell out of following yeah, it to that, the same extent that that that's really interesting because i've i've gone off in i've gone off in contradictory directions because i'm with you guys i couldn't i couldn't name who the quarterfinal of the champions league is but on the other hand while i've while i've always followed knots closely um you know this last year i've gone i've gone back to being like 14 15 again in that regard you know i'm I'm on, I'm on, I'm on, I'm on message board. I'm on message boards. I'm reading, I'm reading, I'm reading the Nothing Evening Post on a pretty much daily basis. Um, you know, it's gone back to the stage where I'm following not obsessively. And actually, you know, they're, they're used to the Reeds brothers and the coaching staff and the players. I can't imagine any of them listen to this, but you've made this pandemic just about bearable. Because you've given all that kind of pent-up nervous energy and angst somewhere to go. It's but yeah, it is. This like, is this is Luke justifying his weekly fugue state at a free. Yeah, it is. It is. It is like it is like being. It is like being sort of eighteen. Yeah, we we would go to all the home games, all the away games. You would know. I would know obsessively which players were injured and exactly how they were injured. Um, but like I say, it's gone off in weird directions because, yeah, I can't, I can't name the quarterfinalists of the champion of the Champions League. I I sort of know who's in the relegation places in the Premier League, but only just. So yeah, I've got I've gone off I've gone off in kind of I've gone off in kind oh. of contradictory um, direction. For, for me, in a pandemic. I, I said like I, 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 pretty much all sports had really just gone off to boil because like uh, just after William was it just after or just before William was born around around then anyway, and um, we got rid of Sky to save money Sky Sports, so I stopped being able to watch. No, 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 tell a lie. It was just before his one-year birthday. We got rid of Sky Sports. So I had Sky Sports for Leicester's title-winning season, and and like the the problem I have is as 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 you know, I'm a bit of a know-it-all, and not in the sense of I know it all, but like I like to know it all. 
And so, like, at the moment, I'm just in that thing of, I put a football get match on, and I'm like, oh, I just, I just don't know any of these players. I, I like it is like when you put, a, it's like when I was like 15, 16, and you put on a, you get your dad to watch a football match with you, and because like, my my dad, uh, my dad in the seventies was a more of a football fan than I've ever been. No, he was going to Leicester game. He was going to every Leicester home game. Um, because his job would mean he he finished at lunchtime, so he'd get to go from Loughborough to Leicester, and he was going down to London for England internationals. Like he's told me the story of like him just being completely fripped, um, uh, uh, going to a home international game against Scotland when they you know the, the Scottish fans you know invaded Wembley and took the goalposts down. And apparently, what people, a lot of people don't know is there's like a load of hassle of English fans as they went on the, as obviously the Scots and the, you know, Midlands and Northern English fans were all on the M1 together. And there's like a load of like Scottish fans hassling the English fans um, from their cars. And so, my, like my dad said, you know, it was like genuinely scary. Uh, but like now, doesn't really follow it very closely. I think I'll fall into that trap. But um... I think one of the things I think I think like I think what we need to talk about a bit really is the mythos, quite honestly, that has built up already around what happened with the European Super League and why it's not going to happen. Let's tell, let's let's explain what didn't happen. What oh, didn't yeah. happen is a bunch of fans complained about it like I mean it is undoubtedly certain that like there was no popular groundswell of opinion there doesn't seem to have been any fan who was like I'm sure you could find one or two you know but basically there were no can I just come in there in England I think the the reaction in Spain and Italy was much more nuanced I think Spain and Italy yeah I think I'm so yeah, I think Spain and Italy is more is more interesting, but the reality is that without England, this was never going to. Well, okay, this was not okay. going to um, I, I don't. I don't get to the end of what I'm going to say, but like, um, all right. Let, let's just people will know this, but like European Super League, six six English clubs, three Italian clubs, three um, Italian, uh, three Spanish clubs. So they're going to form a closed shop, basically a closed league, where you'd have 15 founder clubs. The the, three, the other three clubs they were envisaging joining would be PSG, Borussia Dortmund and uh, Bayern Munich. And then you'd have five clubs that would be invited to take place um, on, a, on a rotating basis, presumably through performance in uh, domestic leagues. Um... And this was announced on Sunday. Um, and uh, and to me, if you're talking about things that didn't happen, the really interesting thing is, is that they did not have a narrative for why this was good for football. They had a very clear narrative for why it was good for them. Um, um, which was, well, we have this league that we can't get relegated from. Um 
because there's no relegation and because our places are secured, that means we can actually institute proper wage caps. And that when the broadcasters were like, oh, hang on, hang on, wait a minute. Like the battle for relegation places, so, so the battle to avoid relegation, the battle for Champions League places, like these are key narratives that we sell football um, uh, to, 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 to viewers. Um, players are thinking, oh, hang on, wait a minute. If you're, if you're going to institute a really hard salary cap, that means we get less money. That doesn't sound right. We don't want <laughs> less money. Um, um, I, I, and so, like that's 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 kind of why it fell apart because it was pure greed, and not in the sense of um, enlightened self-interest or thing of growing a business, but just like. The, it was like desperation. We want money. We want more of the money. We think this is where we're going to get more of the money. But there was no second order justification for it. Yeah, I think I think that's a I think that's a really fair. I think that's very fair. But my point my point is that the the reason this didn't happen was that set that was that the interests that meant this weren't, hap- weren't happening were. Uh, were the existing football authorities, uh, broadcasters, and um, and um, and players themselves? I mean, the fact I think that there were because the reality is, if players didn't want to take part, and also of course, if players were worried they were not going to get, you know, their future earnings were going to be harmed. Actually, the interesting question is like other clubs outside of the European Super League structure. PSG comes to mind could very easily have actually been become a much more attractive place for your Mo Salas, your Harry Kane's, you know, if the sense was so that's why this did it was not because some Chelsea fans were angry about it, which, you know, look, the fact that, you know, it looks like it wasn't something that was taken up enthusiastically. I mean, we don't know. We obviously can't say what all football fans think about it, what all football fans think of this. And I think the reaction was less furious in Spain and Italy. But um, the the football, the Guardian's Football Weekly podcast, which they say about half their audience are not British, because obviously it's a it's a British, it's a podcast connected to a British paper. So they expect they they but they said they lived with this audience, which is a global audience. They had not had anyone like going. Actually, I think the European Super League is a good thing because X, Y, and Z. There was no grounds for the popular sport, but I don't think that's the reason it didn't happen. I mean, what, just, uh, I mean, we're a politics podcast, and I think the the politics of, the politics of this are interesting because the reason the reason Paris Saint Germain um, weren't invited was because no, no, they, they were invited. Oh no! Sorry. The reason the reason they weren't the reason they weren't able to take up the invitation is that the way French law works, French teams are only allowed to play in games that are sanctioned by the by the French Football Association, and that was and actually like when when Boris when Boris Johnson was talking about you know leg, was talking about legislating to prevent that. That would have that would have been that would have that would have been the sim- that would have been the simplest route to do it. Now I don't want to make I don't want to make 
I don't want to make everything about Brexit, but... Yeah, you do. Yeah, yeah, I do. The, 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 it would have been interesting had PSG um, taken up the invitation, because I think under European competition law, that, um, that law would have been very problematic. But of course, post-Brexit, the UK doesn't. The UK doesn't have to worry about. Well, it's that. not just post Brexit, but like it, like the thing of the thing yeah. of Brexit is it lets us be our true selves. So, like, like by all accounts, what the 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 point with the English clubs realised they were screwed was when Boris Johnson told the FA and Premier League that the, basically the FA and the Premier League had a meeting with Boris Johnson. It was like, well, no, we would like to we would like to threaten. That we'll exclude these clubs from um, um, from the Premier League, and we'd like to exclude their players from representing England, but we're not sure they'll stand up in court. And like, this is not just a European thing. Well, I suppose it's a European thing because it's after we joined the European Union. But like um, the the Kerry Packer breakaway in cricket, the attempt to blackball players who join Kerry Packer. Uh, from the county championship was destroyed by a court ruling, and you know just this week a a, a court in Spain uh, put an embargo on uh, La Liga and UEFA. Don't know if that stands stood up on taking any action against uh, the three Spanish clubs who had uh, um, who had joined the, the Super League. But of course, a great thing about Brexit is. We're, you know, we're back, baby. Westminster system, untrammeled parliamentary sovereignty. Yeah, we can just we can just ram a once we can just ram a one clause, one sentence bill through Parliament in twenty minutes if we really want to. <laughs> yeah, um, and and I think that was the thing that kind of made when Boy Johnson said, "Whatever you do, if the courts give her any problems." We'll just pass the law to say the courts are wrong. Um, that's when they were like, "Oh yeah, shit, we can do this." Yeah, and I mean, I, th- I think if, I think if you want if you want a poli- if you want a political implication out of this, that's going to be it. I think I think this, I think this is this is this is perhaps one consequence of Brexit that hasn't got the the attention it probably deserves. The 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 fact the. the the fact is, for good or for ill, and I think this is probably going to play out both for good and ill in different circumstances. The the balance of power between the judiciary, the judiciary, and the executive has shifted in a major shifted in a major way. And, and like, to, to be honest, Luke, is that not just a reason enough to vote for Brexit? Yeah, well, particularly particularly when it particularly when it comes Simon's to head, Simon's head is exploding. Yeah, particularly when it comes to stuff like this that you get that you get an instant popular backlash against, like because the, 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 the next the next big example of this is going to be when it comes to something around monopolies and mergers. I sorry, can I just come foreign ownership? Just just go before we bring Simon back in. The one thing I would say, I think Luke made the right point. Um, I was a bit worried um, about the way the government was talking about it on Monday. Because all the stuff they were talking about did seem to me to be a capricious use of their power. Um, and, you know, like your, your, 
pretending to to use your discretion over administrative functions of the government to achieve a ulterior motive. And like my understanding of the law is like that stuff can be subject to judicial review because you know you're not meant to you're not meant to dish out favors or withhold favors to companies because of um, what you how you think they're acting. And so like I was gunning for a French law and just that like I, I think the whole push for the German model, is BS to be honest. Like, yeah, France seats on the board, I think it's a good idea. Um, um, a, a bit more teeth for fan consultation, perfectly good idea. But the reality is, British clubs have always been owned by private interests. That's the way the system works here. And actually, the German system sucks because it's just became the Bayern show. Like, you know. Bayern's going to get, is almost certainly going to get nine in a row. It's probably going to get ten in a row next year. Um, the idea that the, and I like, look, Madrid, Barcelona are two of the worst run clubs in Spain. They are the member owned clubs. This idea that member owned clubs is this panacea is BS. All you need to do, it's a very simple, you don't even need an independent regulator. You just need a rule to say you can't do a competition unless the FA approves it because that will then mean the FA doesn't have to bend over backwards to appease the big clubs. It means the Premier League doesn't have to bend over backwards to appease the big clubs. The minute they lose the leverage of threatening to walk away, they're done. And people will say, oh, no, they, they, could, they could play their games abroad. You think they're going to let no, Manchester United going to let Old Trafford sit empty as they kind of, you know, um, hitchhike around the world? No, get real. You know, there's millions of pounds they earn from a, 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 a match day at Old Trafford. They're going to want to play their games in Old Trafford. Anyway, Simon, thoughts? Yeah, I agree. I agree with a lot of that. I think this is, a, I mean, I, I worry more about the, you know, I worry more about the implication, you know, like, well done. This is a thing that is universally popular. There will be something that is rather less pleasant that the British government can oh, write. Sorry, 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 sorry. This, this is, sorry, sorry, Simon. Just, sorry, this, this is the point I forgot to make. This is the reason businesses supported joining the European Union, European community, in the 70s. Because they were worried about Mr. Ben and Mr. Foot and Mr. Shaw. And they were like, you know what? It'd be quite good to be wound into the European Court of Justice system. Uh, yes, I think you're right that, you know, a lot of businesses, there's maybe a wake-up call. It's like, oh my God, the House of Commons can pretty much do whatever the fuck it wants. I mean, there are still, there are still laws and there are very highly paid lawyers. Um... And uh, but you know it's not businesses I would worry about. It's uh, it's it's you know it's ordinary people. Um, and in a week when the Home Office essentially murdered someone, but through their own negligence, you know, uh, this country needs to. We need to, um, if, if you don't know this story, basically. Um, 
they left a female asylum seeker to have a stillbirth basically mm. without giving her any kind of hospital treatment for about three hours, meaning obviously the child died. Uh, so, yeah, the, the Home Office, once again, ladies and gentlemen, it's another week in which, I, I mean, literally, I, there, there should we should have a jingle and everything of a section just called Abolish the Home Office. Yeah, we did um, like, don't, don't abolish the police. Do abolish the Home Office. For so many reasons. And the fact, again, it's like the fact that all three of us would have supported Joe Biden in last year's presidential election. You know that a political system is broken when all three of us think a thing is a good idea. And on abolishing the Home Office. But, um, so that that's that's what I'd say on, on the European competition stuff. Yeah, can on, I, on... Sorry, Simon, can I just very quickly comment that? I mean, I... The, the problem, the problem, the problem is the problem is not going to be government exercising a new degree of power when something is unpopular. The problem is going to come with the government exercising a new degree of power when something is popular, but also wrong, wrong but also wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and in the words of Jed Bartlett, as a lifetime holder of unpopular opinions, this is a concern. Um, so, but no. One of the things I'm I'm very happy about, though, my one of my controversial opinions is is actually you know, in a democracy, doing stuff that's popular is usually the right way to go. I mean, that's what democracy is about, right? And like, there are so many things that are clearly popular that politicians. Tr construct weird reasons not to do. So, no, to give an example, um, Cladden, Cladden after Grenfell. Um, I realize that's why I keep tripping over myself when it's Grenfell because it's like Grenfell. Wait, is it Grenfell or Grenfell? But like with, uh, the whole thing with Cladden, right? The government could literally go to every person who owns a flat in the country and say, here's a check for £50,000 or £100,000 or £150,000 or £200,000. Here's a check. We, we're giving you this money because we know you need it because of the cladding issue. And normally, if the government did that, the opposition would be going like, how dare you do that? That's a breach of XYZ, good governance regulation. But the opposition is begging the government to do this. And the government says no. No, we're not going to do this very popular thing that is micro-targeted at affluent suburbanites, affluent urbanites, you know, the type of people who we want to vote conservative. I think it's been quite reassuring to, for once, see the, the government go, oh, there's this popular thing we can do. We're just going to do it. I mean, I think the first thing, to, I mean, I, I could, you know, as someone who is, you know, struggling with this issue personally at the moment um you know it's a it's a thing but like i think but i, I don't actually want to use this podcast just to you know 
whip bitch and moan about my own personal financial situation. But I think the reality is, yes, the government could choose, but they don't actually want people like me to vote for them because most well, of they the do. people... They do, they do, they do. No, well, they clearly don't because if they did want to, they would have no, given they, me some They just don't that. know you exist. They, they think poor people live in these properties. They, they, they haven't realised that, you know, upwardly mobile... Young Maybe live in these I, I I I think frankly, and I mean Sean Bailey is and yes is a is a sign of this, right? I just think that Labour, that the Conservatives have just decided they're not an urban part. They're that they're not an urban but, party. But, but they have twenty seats in London, like. Yes, but they I, seem to have forgotten that, right? Like that's the. Th- I'm not like. I'm not saying that wouldn't be good politics. It would also be good politics to have found someone who can actually who actually knows like their they... ass and their elbow as a label, as the London mayoral candidate, oh, but they haven't done that either. So both, you both know, also, also Simon, like again, like I know you know this, but like guys, there's cladders in the provinces as well. You know, like it's 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 not just a London issue. Um, but it's an urban, it's primarily going to be an urban issue. So it's also going to be, yes, it'll be in Manchester. Yes, it'll be in Birmingham. You know, to get that there is a whole swathe of things. It is this, it's a culture, this, this government has decided to fight a culture war against essentially metropolitan living. Well, and well, I think, I mean, I don't like that, but it's quite clear that's what they're doing. Well, we'll come back to that because I, I, I want to finish the football stuff before Luke has to go. Um, but... Um, I yeah, if I could, I will just say a few thoughts on my thing of where this went wrong, and I'll I'll go to you both to see what you think. There is a problem with football, um, and it's one of these weird ones. It's a bit like Jeremy. I don't know if you've heard this quote. There's a there's a quote go that goes around about gerrymandering in American politics, where um, this academic says that when I teach elections in America. I go through all the possible solutions for gerrymandering, and I explain their strengths, their weaknesses, and then finally I get to proportional representation because that just solves it. So you you, you can't start with proportional representation because that negates all the other solutions that are actually being talked about, Um, but that is the solution. The actual... The problem that the European Super League is trying to solve is that with the exception of the Premier League, every other European league is in a death spiral. Mm. Um, um, They are not competitive. They are not enticing commercial products. And so... If something doesn't happen, the clubs are going to fall behind the Premier League. And this is where they meet Arsene Wenger, one of the most smartest guys about football going around. This is what he said on BN Sports. Why did Premier League sign up to this? It makes no sense. They're doing well. Why are they basically bailing out? Spanish and Italian clubs who are on the brink of going bankrupt trying to compete with them. And the reality is, is because the Premier League is very competitive. 
people will constantly do down the Premier League, constantly criticise it. The Premier League has the fairest allocation of 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 rights fees of any European top flight. It's based on performance. It's not based on your fan base. It's not based on your historic performance. If you finish first, the next season you get the most rights fees. If you finish twentieth, the next no, if you sorry, you finish seventeenth, the next season you get the least. It's very, very fair. And it's collective. Most European leagues have only belatedly had collective rights bargaining. Previously, they've had it where each club got to sell their own home games, which has just made a mess in terms of monetizing the league. Now, the Premier League could be more equal. And I think one of the great tragedies is the abandonment of the old Football League rule that the away side got half the uh, match revenue. Because I think that meant that the big clubs with the most fans didn't get get away from themselves. But the reality of the situation is there is there is a problem with European football. Germany is not a competitive league. Bayern Munich is going to go nine in a row. Spain, Barcelona, uh, Spain. It used to be that uh, a few years ago. I'm sure you remember this, Luke. Um, um, Spanish clubs put out a uh, a banner saying we don't want a Scottish league. Yeah, but they're gonna have new. You know, it doesn't change. They're gonna have new coasts. You know, but Real Madrid and Barcelona are gonna have to swing drafts. Particularly Barcelona, there's a lot of attention on Real Madrid, but Barcelona is going to have to do something drastic to deal with the the perilous financial position they put themselves in. Now Italy, now they've had to take a gamble on the zone because all they could get for their Serie A rights fee is seven hundred and seven hundred and fifty euros from the zone. It's either seven hundred and fifty million. If it's seven hundred and fifty million, I'd offer them eight hundred. <laughs> um, but but, no, but like but like Sky would only offer them below seven hundred. Yeah, and and it's like that's really but, sad. Actually, as somebody who grew up watching Gazetta Football Italia, that's well, that, that's really sad. Well, this is I think the interesting <laughs> thing, isn't it? Like that's that's it. We we the. You know, it has gone full circle. You know, when if you were a football fan in the mid in the early to mid nineties, you know, you know there was a feeling that English football was being you know damaged because everyone was watching this superior product coming out of Italy, and now you know now the opposite. Is but, the but, case. but the thing is, like English football invests in itself. Most mm. clubs are in their own stadium. Most clubs um, own their own training ground. This is not true in Serie A. Um, Barcelona, the new camp is, by all accounts, a complete and utter dump that they haven't bothered to renovate um, because the, the various 
candidates for their presidential elections have to promise transfers. And so they can't fill it. Like Barcelona does not sell out its stadium every week because it's an awkward part of town and it's an awful place to be in to watch football. I know, I know people that I know people that watch games in New Camp, and they they compare it they compare it to the um, the old Wembley. Yeah, and, which is not a compliment. Yeah, and but so, I think it, and, sorry, sorry, so this is my slightly galaxy brained take, and um, it's almost as if it's there's there's almost a case to be made that one of the best things to happen to English football was the Taylor report because yeah, absolutely it, it because like I, I'm not I'm not going to say that the Hills disaster was horrific and you know there are 96 people and, and we've actually just passed the uh, latest anniversary and stuff. but like the fact that every English every football club at a reasonable level was basically told no, you've you've got to build a stadium that is not is a is a basically pleasant place to be. You know, after the horror, you know, English football in the nineteen eighties was broadly was not a thing you would you'd want to get in. You know, you'd have to basically be pretty weird to want to go to English football in oh, the nineteen eighties. Oh, it was violent. The stadiums were falling apart, and, no, sorry, and sorry, that just, has just, changed. Sorry, Simon, just coming That's when that stopped. What's going? It, your dad stopped going in the eighties. Yeah, yeah, good. Like, no, not not worth going. Mm. Uh, yeah. Leicester, uh, Leicester wasn't the club that had a, had a particular hooligan problem, but it just wasn't worth going. Yeah, but I, I think it's one of those like you don't want. Obviously, you, you never want to say that line Hillsborough was good for English football, but the resu- but the things that came out, like the things that were forced to happen to after that, does seem to have made English football a much more saleable product. Well, and twenty you, years down the line. So I was reading an article. Um, from a uh, Stubstacker called uh, Grace um, um, about about the, the European Super League, and, and and she was she was saying they had no narrative about why it was good for football. They, mm. they they had their logic why it was good for um, um, themselves, but they had no narrative why it was good for football. And obviously, the Premier League is a breakaway league. You know, you know it, it 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 stops it stops sharing on a more equitable basis the first division's revenues and its rights fees with the rest of the football league. But they had a narrative about that, which was basically the middle middle the gentrification of football. That this was going to be something that wasn't going to be. You know, in the eighties, it had got to the point that football was a bit like what Margaret Thatcher said about the about the bus. You know, if you if you were a man over thirty and you're on the bus, you were a failure. If you were a man over thirty, you're still really into football. You were a failure. Um, and the Premier League kind of nuked that before it kind of really took rot as. British society really went it shifted from working class to middle class. Like there's a there's a really interesting counterfactual where if football hadn't have taken those difficult decisions in the late eighties, early nineties, do you have a situation where rugby union and cricket 
are much more equal to football as mm. British society becomes more middle class. One thing, well, I mean, one thing, one thing I'll say just to add to what Simon was saying is, you know, obviously Hillsborough is a te- Hillsborough is a terrible tragedy, but the 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 Taylor report, the Taylor report should be taken as a model of how you run of how you run a public inquiry, and how you write and how you write, and how you write the recommendations of one. Because what what, ta- what Taylor was what Taylor was brilliant at was setting out not just not like changes of culture or process, but really concrete, really literally concrete steps that would have to be taken. It was it was, inc- it was incredibly he was incredibly good at not just saying what had gone wrong, but actually laying out a path to fix these problems. Um, and yeah, it, it should be it should be the model of how of how a of how a public of how a public inquiries conducted and how the, the final um, reports written. Now that's separate from that's separate from the prosecution from the the decision not yeah. to prosecute. Not Actually, to, no, two 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 police officers are being. Prosecutes their role in Hillsborough, and that announcement was made either this week or last week. I mean, just to go um, to go back to the actual Super League itself. Again, I think involved in the English club, I understand why they did it, but it was a dead end because of Brexit. It was always going to be the weak link, and also because of Chelsea and Man City, as two clubs that didn't really need to join it. Like the whole idea of this is. Oh, we're all losing so much money. We 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 need to club together to create a closed league so we don't lose money. Well, Man U, Man City aren't. Man U, Liverpool aren't losing money. Um, Chelsea, Man City don't care about that that much. So actually, getting those getting the English clubs involved was a mistake. They shouldn't have done it. I I and I will put this to you, um, you guys. I do wonder if they have said, "Look, there is an issue. There there is a uh, spectre stalking European football, and it's those Mad Islanders. And you know, it is the English Premier League that no, unlike most European leagues." actually gets more money for its rights than the Champions League itself. And if we don't do something, they're gonna run they're gonna run European football in the next decade. Like they've already loosened your uh, financial fair play to not give the Premier League its deserved advantage. So if they'd have gone and said no English clubs, because it was always going to be, because, you know, so you, this is Guardian Football Weekly, this is other, other reporting. The Spanish and Italian clubs were willing to be kicked out of their own leagues because this would more than make up for their league and Champions League income, whereas the Premier League clubs they would, 
they would be okay with being kicked out of the Champions League, but it wouldn't make economic sense to be kicked out of the Premier League and the Champions League. That would mean they were no, they they would lose money on the deal. So imagine if they had up announced a Super League with a, a Spanish Italian core that had several clubs from France, not just PSG. They've gone to Marseille, they've gone to Lyon to reassure PSG they should go for it. They've gone to Scotland, they've gone to Belgium for Andelect, they've gone to Atu Netherlands for PSG, uh, Eindhoven, maybe even Feinoid. They'd gone to Switzerland for Grasshopper Zurich. They'd gone to Turkey for uh, Galatasaray. They'd gone to Moscow for CSK uh, Moscow. They'd gone to Portugal for Porto and Benfica. They'd gone to Scotland for, uh, for Rangers and Celtic. And I'm sure I'm forgetting clubs. But it actually developed around a Spanish-Italian core. They actually developed a 20-strong roster of, giant, of of big clubs that have that outside that core had been diminished by the way European football had worked. And they had said, like, look, European football's not working. It's just getting more and more predictable. Clubs in countries outside of England are more and more falling behind the pace. The Super League will be a weekend league that feeds into the Champions League, providing they give us, say, eight spots compared to the usual four. I think that may have worked. I think people may have thought that made sense. <laughs> a terrifying vision of things to come. But I, but that would be a narrative. Like we are, we are trying to resurrect. Yeah. yeah, it would have been. We are trying to resurrect these smaller, these big clubs and small leagues. Yeah, and like and, and like I I uh, that's like a and yeah you'd have you'd have grainy pictures of you know Panathinaikos playing in the nineteen in the in the European mm. Cup final in the nineteen seventies and things like that and and I but yeah the whole the this entire exercise you know t- seemed to come out of the clear blue sky I'm sure people who know follow football journalism more closely than I do. Would go that you know I know I know people were talking about it for years, but they, I must say I kind of read the headline on Sunday going oh we've it's it's oh we haven't had this rumor for eighteen months and then you know it seemed to go from thing that was just a random story to this is definitely going to happen to this is dead in forty eight hours because there wasn't a there wasn't it was a it was a half it was a plan that went off half cop I I, I really think there was a hostile leak. I don't think this was meant to launch now. Mm. And maybe that, because Perez, because again, like Chelsea, Chelsea, Man City joining it never made any sense. Um, I bet they're kicking themselves for joining it at all. 
but I, I think there's a hostile leak from one of those two clubs because they were the two clubs that, that basically gained nothing from joining it, particularly Man City. Are, um, we, are, we, are we absolutely sure it wasn't Dominic Cummings? No. And on that note, <laughs> uh, because it's not <laughs> our turn, I'm all calling. He's looped mid up. And he may have received information for Dominic Cummings. Oh, no, wait a minute. It's just Simon Alvey. <laughs> Not just Simon Alvey. He is Simon Alvey. Because, of course, Simon Alvey is a higher form of humanity than people who receive information for Dominic Cummings. I certainly, certainly than Dominic Cummings. I'll take that. I'll say that. <laughs> and on that bombshell, we'll talk to you again in a while. <laughs>